Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. Uh, My name is Gabby. I am our student ministry director here at Shepherd. Um, And we, as you can maybe tell by the video, are in a series on neighboring where we are trying to learn how to be better neighbors. Um, And that really goes along with this three-year vision that we have as a church, which is this desire to be a good community for the community around us, which certainly includes our neighbors. And so, uh, Two weeks ago, Jeremy, he kicked us off and he started talking about who is our neighbor. And surprise, we just learned it's the people that are close to us and we don't get to choose who those people are. Those are our neighbors and we are called to love them. And then last week, Sam talked about these these mental barriers that we kind of build up between us and our neighbors and our uh, decisions that we make to break those down to create bridges um, where we can engage our neighbors. And this week, I'm gonna talk about our motives and kind of our posture of what, how we should interact with our neighbors in the world. Um, but before we get started, I have never received a dress code for a sermon before. No one has ever told me what to wear, but I kind of felt like I had one this week because last week Sam wore, to, wore a cardigan and the week before Jeremy joked about it and the amount of people that asked me if I was gonna wear a cardigan was a lot. So I felt the pressure. Um, but the reason we're doing that, I guess, is because of Mr. Rogers. Um, so I have a picture of him. And I did the best I could. I got the cardigan, I got the shoes, but let's face it, like I am never gonna look like Mr. Rogers. And I don't think Sam or Jeremy really do either, but uh, for the future, if they really wanna go for it, this is the outfit they're gonna have to recreate. I'm kind of issuing that challenge uh, to them. But this morning, I'm gonna talk a little bit about my neighboring experience. About a year ago, last May, I moved into a house with uh, three other girls um, and we live in a little white house in Shoreview and we love it, we love living there. I think we have a picture of us. This is us, we are not all related. Uh, This is my sister, Anna, and then my two other roommates who's both are named Hannah. Um, So we have Hannah, Hannah, Anna and Gabby, I kind of break the, I thought of changing my name to like Ganna, but it didn't sound very good. Um, And so this is us, this is a picture that we took because we wanted to be good neighbors and like send out a Christmas card uh, to the people around us. You see everybody else in our neighborhood has lived there for like 20 years and then there's us. So we're like the new ones on the street. Um, And you know when you like meet a new neighbor and it's clear that they've heard information about you from other neighbors? Because you meet them and they're like, oh my gosh, you do this for work. And you're like, I, yeah, I do. How do you know that? That's because they've all been talking to each other because they all know each other. And so we're trying to like introduce ourselves. This was, a, this was our attempt at a Christmas card, um, but we didn't get around to it at Christmas. So we decided to send out a Valentine's Day card. So you can see some elements of pink here. Um, and we didn't send it out for Valentine's Day either. So... Uh, At this point, I think we're looking at a St. Patrick's Day card, um, which is this week. So even that is honestly a bit of a stretch. So I'll let you know which holiday we actually get it out for. But um, it's funny when you move into a new neighborhood because uh, people make assumptions about you because they are trying to understand who you are from very little information, mostly just like what they observe, observe, Wow, I messed it up twice in a row. Observe across the street from you. And um, 
Right after we moved in, about three weeks after, we decided to throw a housewarming party because we were very excited about our house, so we wanted everyone to come and see it. And so we were like, okay, we're gonna invite all our friends over. We had like 30 people at our house, and our house is not that big. That's a lot of cars on the street. And so we had it, it was pretty chill. The last person I checked left by 10.45, which was about 45 minutes later than I would have preferred, but you can't dictate that for everybody. Um, so they were all gone by 10.45, there was no loud music, any of that, but a few days later, we're talking to our landlord who lives on our street, and he said, hey, do you know what people are calling you? I said, no, what are they calling us? He said, they're calling you the party house. And we're like, what? We had one party. Um, and so I was a little offended at first because like that is not the vibe we are going for. But then I decided to actually embrace the title because never once in my life have I been accused of being a partier. And so I'm gonna just like soak it in while I can. I think by now they've seen the lack of parties we've had and realized that was probably a false label, but it was fun while it lasted. Um, but I think there's that thing where, where nobody wants to be mislabeled, right? Nobody wants to have an assumption made about them that isn't true. And I think that's also true of us and our faith. We don't want people to assume anything about our intentions, about our motives that isn't true. And so as we're looking at this series, we're in um, this series and it's based off of a book called The Art of Neighboring. And they're talking about motives and they're saying that one of the things that could cause people to misunderstand us or mislabel us is if we look at our neighbors as projects, as problems to be fixed. What I mean by that is we look at our neighbors and we say, my goal is just to make you believe what I believe. And nobody likes that, right? Nobody likes to feel like there's a hidden agenda behind our actions. But as I was kind of reading that chapter and thinking about that, I didn't really relate to that because um, I'm an introvert. And so my goal is just to not talk to new people, certainly not to share like <laughs> deep details about my life. Um, and so what I kind of feel like is actually more true of me, and I'm wondering if it's more true of us in the room, is not that we would kind of fall into the ditch of being like, big and boisterous and aggressive about our faith, but actually that we kind of tip onto the other side, which is that we would just sort of have this like nice Midwestern sensibility about us of like, I'm just gonna be a vaguely kind, generally helpful person, and they're never gonna know that there's anything all that different about me. And while that probably saves us from some of the damage we can do of being kind of too aggressive with our faith, I don't know how much good it actually does either. Are we kind of standing out in any way or are we just kind of keeping our neighborhoods exactly the same? So the question is, what, what do we do to avoid these ditches? How do we avoid falling in either one? And the first thing we have to do is kind of check our motives. What's our motivation behind what we're doing? Because like I said before, nobody wants a hidden agenda. And as Christians, we have a pretty clear motive and that motive is love. First Corinthians 13, I think, kind of portrays this idea well. It says this, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. The message of this passage is is pretty clear that for Christians, if our motive is anything other than love, if we have any sort of hidden agenda, even if we think it might be a good one or a comfortable one, if it's not love, then the gain is ultimately nothing. That love has to be our motive. This can put some of us in a tough spot. Maybe like me, you're like, hey, uh, my neighbors are kind of strangers and you know, I want good things for them, but I'm not sure that I feel love towards them. That's kind of a strong emotion. Or some of you have the opposite problem. You're like, I know my neighbors too well and I know that I don't love them. And, and so it can, it can lead us into this like sort of tight spot where we're thinking, well, so if, if I have to make sure my motives are set and that I don't have a hidden, hidden agenda, does that make, mean I have to like wait until I can feel all of these warm and fuzzy feelings about love before I, I do anything? In that case, like maybe we should just sit back. Maybe that prevents us from wanting to do anything at all. But um, Sam actually shared with me this passage that's kind of commenting on this uh, passage of scripture, and I thought it was really good. Uh, it's by N.T. Wright, and I was trying to figure out how to say it, and then I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna read it. It's way easier. Uh, so this is what it says. In fact, in the early church, love was often connected quite directly with various needs rather than necessarily to have warm feelings. Of course, this can be done coldly and patronizingly, but again and again, in Christian experience, we discover that when we behave towards someone as though we really did love them, then to our surprise, love, care, and concern for the other person's welfare quickly springs up. We do well to remind ourselves that if we waited until we were quite sure of our motives were completely pure, we might never actually get around to doing anything at all. And we've been talking about this kind of same idea the past few weeks that actually when we look to uh, the life of Jesus, when we look to the scripture, what we see actually is that love is not just this warm, fuzzy feeling, that love is a verb, that it's an active term, that it's something that, if, that propels us forward. And so really to have our motive be love, it does not mean that we just have to feel good, it means that we have to choose to act maybe even in spite of our feelings. And what we find is that feelings often follow. So we know that if our motive is to love our neighbor, then that means we actually have to do something. That the one thing we for sure can't do is just sit back and do nothing. But to me a little bit, this, this feels almost like I'm, I'm on a tightrope. I think we have a picture of a guy on a tightrope. This is apparently a really famous tightrope walker from, I don't know, a while ago. He's not alive anymore. Um, I don't know why I told you that. (laughs) But he's got a great outfit, so there you go. But it can feel a little bit like we're on a tightrope where we've still got these two ditches. The like big boisterous Christian one and the like just gonna act like everybody else one. And now I'm telling you, but you need to go. You need to do, you need to love. And you're like, okay, like I'm stepping out here, but I don't wanna like be awkward and weird. 
and I actually wanna be helpful and it can feel like, well then how do we move forward? This is all a balancing act that we have to like try to navigate and manage. So what I wanna do with just the time we have left is just look at a couple of passages that really help me understand my posture of how I'm supposed to kind of interact with the world and certainly with our neighbors. So there's two, we're gonna get through them, it's gonna be great. The first one comes from Colossians. Colossians 4, it says this, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. And this uh, is kind of placed into a letter that's being written to church, kind of at the end, some just quick advice that they're being given. And when I first read it, I go, oh, that word outsiders like doesn't sit super good with me um, because I'm not trying to create some like us versus them dynamic. That's not what we're trying to do. That probably won't bring us closer with our neighbors. But as I studied a little more, I actually think it's a really helpful term because this term outsiders acknowledges that for those of us that call ourselves Christians, that there are legitimate differences between us and the people around us and that those differences matter. It means that we might live our life by a different set of values and visions than the people around us. And maybe what that causes some of us to wanna do is once again, retreat. But actually this, this scripture is assuming that you're not doing that away from people that are different than you, but actually right in the middle of it. It says, make the most of every opportunity so that you may know how to answer everyone, which is of course implies that you're having conversations with other people who maybe don't believe what you do. And that might like sound a little bit uncomfortable, but it's actually proven to be so helpful to me because I used to get so frustrated when people didn't act the way that I thought that they would or they should. Do you ever get frustrated because people don't do what you think they should do? Just me, okay. Um, but, I have an example, so maybe you can relate to this. Um, a few months ago in January, my parents went out of town for a few weeks and I was supposed to look after the house. And surprise, it snowed, like four inches. And my, they have this like thing that attaches to the lawnmower um, to plow the snow, but I wasn't even allowed to use the lawnmower growing up because my parents didn't trust me with it. So I never figured out how to use that. And uh, I did after the next snowfall and it was way easier than what I decided to do. I was gonna shovel uh, the driveway and you know, four inches of snow and a big driveway, that's gonna take a long time. It took me like two hours. Like my palms were hurt. At one point I was just standing upright and I just totally fell on the ground, but nobody saw, so it was okay. And um, as I get to the top of the driveway, I, I didn't make it to, to their house to shovel until a few days after it had snowed. Sorry, dad, he's in the audience. Um, and I was looking around at all of these professionally, beautifully plowed driveways. And I'm thinking to myself, come on neighbors, really? Like normally this driveway is plowed very timely and very quickly and you've had days to drive past it and see that it wasn't happening. How hard would it have been for one of you to just get on your snow plow and come over here and just take care of it? Can't you see the pain that I'm in currently? And so I'm like, you know, thinking that in your head, like don't you have these like stories you tell yourself about your neighbors of like, ah, oh, why don't they, why do they let their dog bark at all hours of the night? That's, that's from my actual life. Um, but I'm like t telling myself these narratives and then it's like, whoa, 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 I gotta step back for a moment. 
because I'm all of a sudden placing expectations on my neighbors that, that aren't fair to them. First of all, like my dad always plows the driveway, so they, he literally never needs anyone to plow, so they're not exactly looking out for it. But also, listen, I, I have this narrative, I have this guiding vision for my life based on the life of Jesus that says self-sacrificial love and service to others is, is like one of our main values, and I have a really hard time following it myself. Like I don't do that most of the time. Every once in a while, I get it. And I have the vision and the value that's telling me that that is what's important and I still fail a bunch. So why would I expect a person who doesn't believe what I believe to behave how I behave? Why would we put those expectations on somebody else? If they have a different set of beliefs, we should not assume that they behave the same that we do. And what that, like, like what that maybe could do is create this sense of superiority, but what I actually think it should do is just be freeing for us. Like lift a weight off of our shoulders to say, listen, if our motive is love, then our posture gets to be loving others without expecting anything in return. Because we do that all the time. You know when you do someone a favor that they didn't ask for and then they don't say thank you and then you're like mad at them for not saying thank you for the favor they didn't ask for? You've all done it. Or when someone gives you a gift you weren't expecting and then you've entered into a weird social contract, like you now owe them a gift, like that's not how this stuff works. But instead, when we're navigating this tightrope, when we're trying to move into love, let's make sure that we're lifting off any extra weight that doesn't belong there because it's already challenging enough. Our motive is love and there's no hidden agenda, not even the agenda to be affirmed or recognized for what we do. We don't need that. And furthermore, like oftentimes we don't even know the response that our actions have. I was talking to Mayor, who's our, our worship leader, and around Christmas time she delivered cookies to some of her neighbors and she you know, got that guilt gift back of like, ah, you gave me something. Oh no, I have to give you something. She didn't call it a guilt gift, but I just created that term. And um, she said she didn't hear back from some other ones and she was out, guess what, shoveling the other day. And one of her neighbors said, hey, I never got to thank you for those cookies you gave me like months ago. That was really kind. And it, it just reminds me of like, hey, let's not write narratives, not, let's not write stories, let's not create expectations on our neighbors that don't belong to them. Because we might be wrong. And all we're called to do is love without expectation. That that actually makes our walk on this tightrope a little bit easier. Okay, I got one more passage for you. And this one, it's gonna be a little bit weird, but I'm gonna explain it and hopefully it's gonna make sense. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble 
whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Now, this is one of those passages that you come across in the Bible and then you go, that's kind of weird. That doesn't relate to us today. Let's move on. Um, But I had to study it because I was in a class and I didn't have a choice. Um, And so I was looking at this passage and actually when I was understanding the dynamic, I think it's a really good posture for us to kind of grasp. And essentially what this passage is talking about, it's a group of Christians who are trying to figure out how to interact with the outside world, like we heard before, people who are different from them. And one of the sort of core social uh, norms of the time was to eat meals with people just like today. But those meals often took place in idol temples, so where there were being sacrifices made in worship to other gods, which isn't something we do today, but we can understand kind of the tension there. That Christians didn't wanna necessarily go to those and compromise their faith, but at the same time, they didn't wanna not go because then they were just kind of excluding, being excluded from the kind of social order of the world. And so they're in this tight situation, and Paul, who is writing this letter, is kind of telling them like, no, you can go. And what he's saying is, listen, first of all, you need to know that we have freedom in Christ. That like we are not beholden to all of these set of rules. And as long as you thank God for it, like you can eat the meat, don't worry about it. I, maybe this is like a diet tip for some of you, I don't know. And so we get this response of going, okay, so we can do that. But then he goes, but wait a second. You have to remember to consider conscience. We see that word conscience in there. But the person's conscience that he is talking about isn't the one we expect. He is not saying, consider your own conscience and what feels good to you and your faith. He's saying, but remember that when you go and whatever you do, always have the other person's conscience in mind. So he is saying, yes, you can go to that temple, you can take part in that meal, that's okay, you have freedom, go do it, be a part of the social order of the world, but if there is someone at that meal who doesn't believe what you do that thinks that you might be compromising your faith by taking part in this meal, even though you know that you're not, don't do it. And we're like, wait, what? (laughs) But it's okay. And Paul's going, yeah, yeah, but if we're gonna love people, we wanna make sure that our intentions and our belief and the way that we live out our faith is very clear. And so we are willing to restrict our freedom in order to send people the correct message about who we are and what we believe. And this might sound like super churchy, but I think it, for me, it actually shows up in like a bunch of practical ways, especially as we're interacting with people that are different than us. Like maybe um, it's the, the, the words that you use, right? We all have different ways of talking that, that some people might be comfortable with and some people might not be, which is probably a whole nother sermon in and of itself. But there are maybe certain words that you're comfortable with. And when you get around your neighbors, you think like, I know I can say this and it's fine, but they might get the wrong idea. So I'm gonna actually limit my language for the sake of them. Or like tips, you guys, like, if you're just gonna write God bless you on the check, please do not say you're from Shepherd because <laughs> we wanna like give a good image, right? And so yes, I know that in your freedom, you can decide how much to tip. And especially if the service was bad, maybe they didn't even earn a tip, but 
We wanna live in a way where our values can't be misunderstood. We say as Christians, right, that we're supposed to be these generous, loving people. So maybe you tip anyways so that you aren't misunderstood. You see, we wanna behave in a way where our beliefs can't be misunderstood. I think alcohol is a good example of this, right? We, we have a lot of different ideas of what alcohol consumption, the Bible says, don't get drunk, but like there's a lot of gray area in between. And as Lutherans, we love to live in that gray area. But maybe when we're around people and we have to send a message about what we believe, we would limit our freedom in that area. This isn't like the most fun thing ever, but we wanna behave in a way where our beliefs can't be misunderstood because currently, I think, Christians are misunderstood a lot and we aren't necessarily doing things to help ourselves. And if we're stepping out on that tightrope, we wanna make sure that we're not gonna fall into either ditch. And doing that is just being super clear being super intentional about what we do and how we do it. And I can't talk about every scenario that you're gonna face, but it's just an idea of like, yeah, when it comes to loving our neighbor, we have to walk with intention. With a question that we're always asking of, of what is love? What is the most loving? What is the most clear I can be in this situation? And then do that, even if it means doing things that we, taking extra precaution that we know that we technically don't need to. And I know that what I haven't done is, is gotten us off of that tightrope. I think we have a picture of that guy again, just cause I, I like it. I know we haven't, I haven't taken that away. Like that's what I would really have liked to do. I've been like, and I'm gonna resolve all the tension for you and we're just gonna go out there and do it. But the tension still exists, it's always going to. But what I can tell you is sometimes we feel like the stakes are super high. Like if this guy falls off this tightrope, it's done. And we can feel like when we're interacting like with our neighbors, that every interaction has this really high stakes of like, oh, if I mess up and if I tilt into either ditch and I fall off, like it's gonna be disastrous. At least that's the narrative I tell myself. I just wanna remind us today that the stakes are so much lower than we realize. Like, like, yes, the tightrope's here, but what I want you to picture is like um, one of those practice balance beams that kids use, you know what I'm talking about? It's like four inches wide, it's like this far off the ground. They like walk on it. That's what you're on. That's what you're actually on. And so if you tip off of either one side, you can just hop right back up. You don't even have to start back from the beginning. You can just keep going. Because we have to remember that as our motivation is love, it is fueled by the love of Christ. That the love that we show, that the love that propels us is just a small amount of the love that we received. That the grace that we're given is just a small amount of the grace that we extend. And guess what? If you fall off too many times and you ruin your relationship with your neighbors, you could always move and just start again in a different neighborhood. <laughs> I wanna close um, with a prayer. And I thought of this passage as I was getting ready and it was just a good one for me to kind of like go, okay, um, I can't 
give you like, now everyone go deliver cookies to your neighbor. I guess I could, but I don't know how helpful that would be. But I wanna just leave you with this uh, scripture that I think um, is a good one. I'm gonna read it for us twice and then we're gonna pray. It says this, search me God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. One more time, search me God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you with the words of that scripture and we ask that you would search us, that you would test us. Because if we're honest, there are a lot, there's a lot of resistance. There are a lot of good excuses, there are a lot of mixed motives that we have when it comes to this idea of loving our neighbor. So we invite you in to our lives and to our hearts to search us and to test us, to calm any anxiety that we might feel, and then to do what you promise to do, which is to lead us in your way everlasting that the way of love is a well-worn path that you have already walked. So help us follow in your footsteps, Jesus, and remind us that every time we stumble and fall, that you're there to pick us up and set us right. Thank you, Lord, for the love we receive in your life, and thank you for the, the love that you feel towards our communities, towards our neighbors, May we be people that makes that more and more obvious in the world. In your name we pray, amen.